This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Friday, October 6th. On the pod today, a diplomatic deadline looms over the federal government. Canada has four days to get several dozen diplomats out of India. Efforts are underway to turn down the temperature and keep them posted there. What's at stake here? Well, we've got experts in foreign policy standing by. Plus, conservatives seize on a liberal MP's defiance. What should the liberals do after Ken McDonald publicly opposed his government's carbon tax and said the environment minister is the wrong person to sell it? The power panel is here for that debate. Plus, New Brunswickers could be headed to the polls a year early. There are strong signs Premier Blaine Higgs is going to call a snap election. Provincial Affairs reporter Jacques Poitras explains why. It will be a Thanksgiving weekend of frantic diplomacy as Canada tries to head off a potential escalation in tensions with India. CBC News has confirmed that India has given Canada a deadline of Tuesday to reduce its diplomatic presence in India. The demand is for Canada to remove about 40 diplomats from the country. If not... India is threatening to revoke the diplomatic immunity of Canadian officials who don't leave. Canada has removed some of its staff from India as tensions have escalated in recent weeks. A staff located outside of Delhi who might not have full diplomatic immunity have relocated to Singapore and Kuala Lumpur. To dig into this, Roland Paris is the director of the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and a former senior advisor on foreign policy to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And Thomas Junot is an associate professor at the University of Ottawa specializing in security and intelligence. Gentlemen, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Roland, I wonder if we can start with you. What are the implications of these demands uh, from India? Should they follow through on, the, on their threats? Well, I think we we have to wait and see what happens. Um, you know, this there are moments when dealing with things diplomatically behind the scenes makes the most sense rather than dealing with them up front publicly and raising uh, tensions, et cetera. This is probably one of those moments. The uh, rules governing diplomats, there is a convention out there. I'm not a lawyer, but there are procedures built into that convention. So uh, I think India would want to be a country that was seen to be following all the rules of uh, the conventions governing uh, the handling of diplomats and diplomacy. So let's just see how this actually turns out a few days from now. Yeah, Tomah, Canada is definitely uh, playing this slow and quiet, right? Focusing on diplomacy, not saying anything uh, aggravating in public on this. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on what we're hearing India is demanding of Canada? At this point, it, it seems to me, but as Roland says, based on incomplete information uh, on our side, it's difficult to say with any kind of certainty, but it seems to me that it is the right approach for Canada to really play it as quiet as possible, as low profile as possible, and to focus the messaging in private, but also in public, on the need to de-escalate. Uh, we don't have an interest, we don't have the capability to win an escalation with India, and so it's not in our interest. That being said, there is a bit of a risk here. Uh, it's it's increasingly clear, including with those news coming out today, that India does want to escalate. And if Canada is perceived too much, not only by India, but by others too, as uh, in, in being too intent on playing it quiet and trying to de-escalate, that can be perceived as weakness. That can be perceived as uh, Canada being able to be bullied around by right. India by Saudi Arabia five years ago. 
So there is a message here that Canada does have to be mindful of uh, that is being sent more broadly and farther down the road uh, that we do have to be careful with. Right. So, so Roland, we have seen, you know, in diplomatic uh, disputes in the past, people get PNG, declared persona non grata, and they're asked to leave the country in a set amount of time. I have never seen anyone threaten to revoke diplomatic immunity for people who aren't voluntarily removed uh, by the government, as, as we're hearing India is asking to do. I mean, what, what would be the international reaction, do you think, if, if, if the rules of the Vienna Convention were just kind of discounted by the world's biggest democracy? Yeah, and it's a good question about the international reaction. And again, uh, you know, there are procedures set out in that convention, and I wouldn't expect the Canadian government to be making blustery statements at this moment while it's not exactly clear what India is actually going to do. And, uh, you know, I think that the government has indicated that there are conversations that are still happening between the two governments. I have no doubt that uh, there is a lot of diplomacy taking place behind the scenes, not just with India, but with many other countries, third parties and and partners of Canada. And your question about, you know, what would the international reaction be? Listen, India uh, wants to strengthen its relations with lots of parts of the world, including with the Western countries that are now seeking to strengthen their relations with India for economic and strategic reasons. India does not want to be seen as a country that uh, flouts rules wantonly. And so, I, you know, I think that India is likely to be mindful of what the inter international reaction is going to be in this circumstance. Let's just hope that that's true. Well, Tamar, Roland makes a, you know, the point that India doesn't want to be seen as a country that flouts rules, but you know, the prime minister did implicate them in an extrajudicial killing in parliament, and now here we are with, with this. So, I, I mean, how, how would you even begin to describe the state of the diplomatic relations between the two countries as, as this has escalated? Oh, the state of Canada-India diplomatic relations have taken a, a serious downturn, and there's no there's no doubt about that. I think what, there's two kinds of questions that we have asked have to ask ourselves on that basis. A, beyond managing the crisis in the short term, as we just laid out, how do we farther down the road try to uh, repair these relations? Uh, that is going to take time, and that's increasingly clear. The fact that, as Roland just said, Canada, as its other Western allies, has an interest in economically and strategically deepening relations with India. Fundamentally, that has not changed. Beyond that, the other question that, that I hope uh, we are asking ourselves internally in the government is, given the fact that the main pillar of our new Indo-Pacific strategy, India, uh, will not act as that pillar, at least for the short, possibly the midterm, what do we do in the Indo-Pacific region? Uh, should we try to refocus some efforts towards Indonesia, Vietnam, South Korea, Japan, uh, beyond India? Because at least for now, that's a bit of a closed door. Well, and Roland, just to, I guess to underscore how fraught things are right now, a bunch of diplomats or diplomatic staff who might not have full diplomatic immunity who worked in, say, Canadian consulates and whatever outside of Delhi, they've relocated to Kuala Lumpur, they've relocated to Singapore as these tensions have escalated. That in itself strikes me as a, a pretty alarming sign about where things are going right now on the, the, the Indo-Canadian relationship. Yeah, I think that relations are very strained right now. I mean, in contrast to the situation we had with the terrible situation with China and the two Michaels, my understanding is that Canada and India are continuing to talk. But there's no doubt that, uh, you know, if India was responsible for assassinating a Canadian citizen on Canadian territory, the Canadian government is not going to forget about that. They're not just going to let it, uh, they're not going to brush it off. 
I do think that they're playing a longer game right now. Uh, there is a criminal investigation underway. I suspect, just a personal view, eventually this information will make its way into the public domain. I would expect that there is ongoing diplomacy with partners. And in, I would expect that countries like the United States are communicating to India their concern about this. And so I think that there is, this is just one of these situations where I think that there's probably a lot going on behind the scenes that will only become clearer um, as time unfolds. No, th certainly the, that was the impression I came away with my conversations with various officials and various levels of government today, that there's a lot happening, so they're not saying a thing because obviously they would like a, a diplomatic resolution to this rather than the escalation. And so, Tamal, like, what could Canada say to India at this point? You know, in the three to four days that they have left, do you think, well, what's the sort of approach they could take to try to, to stop this from happening? Uh, this is a this is a really difficult question to answer, given as Roland just said that there's so much that we don't know that is presumably yeah. happening behind the scenes. So what has been said, what has not been said, you know, I, I think that in the very very short term, it's mostly a matter of being in crisis management mode and trying to limit uh, the, the the damage uh, to relocating staff and so on. Um, one thing that Canada presumably again has been doing, but but it does play a really important role here, is talking to allies. Uh, we do know, given a variety of declarations, that we have been talking to the Americans, we have been talking to the British, and so on. They have their own interest in a, in a deepening relations with India, so they are reluctant to, to uh, be seen as taking our side too much. But if you read between the lines, uh, notably on the American side, there is concern uh, with mm -hmm. India's actions. And, and if we take a couple steps back, you know, India in the, in the last few months, last couple of years, has taken a much more assertive, sometimes much more aggressive very nationalist term in terms of its foreign policy, domestically too, in terms of its respect for minorities and human rights and, and, and the democratic process and so on. So there is a broader conversation here that Canada can have with its allies to try to build at least some support uh, on, on our side. Yeah, so Roland, on, on that, we've heard that the US, the UK, Australia, they've all uh, spoken to India and encouraged them to cooperate in, in the criminal investigation uh, related to the murder of Hurdip uh, Singh Nijer. Um, is that also the approach on, on calming diplomatic tensions when it comes to consular staff and diplomatic staff, having your allies lean in with India, or is this a problem Canada has to solve directly? Oh, I'm sure that, I, I mean, I don't know, but I would, I'd be very surprised if there wasn't active diplomacy with Canadian allies and third parties talking to the Indians about this. Uh, and I, I would think that the constructive way of trying to avert the worst here would be to focus on the terms of the convention and mm. to reiterate the importance of India uh, operating in a way that's consistent with international rules and norms, which it purports to uphold, and to have allies communicating the same message. You know, there's been a lot of attention to the fact that a lot of our allies want to strengthen relations with India for their own economic and strategic reasons. Canada, for that matter, has <laughs> until recently been trying to strengthen relations with India for the same reasons. But let's not uh, mistake the fact that India also has a very strong interest in pursuing those relationships. And to the extent that these actions have the potential to cause problems within those relationships, and I think that they are causing some problems in those relationships, then I think working through allies and with other partners can be beneficial to Canada. So, Tamad, just on a final point, I mean, India is obviously playing hardball diplomatically. We've also seen this torrent of 
misinformation and disinformation coming out of India media sources about cocaine on the prime minister's plane and a bunch of other things that seem designed to sort of distract from the central allegation of a potential Indian role in a a murder. Uh, What do you think India is trying to do here? What signals do you think you're trying to send to Canada? What signals do you think you're trying to send to, to other countries? Uh, so that that's a really important question. First of all, there is a, a, a dimension to that signaling by India that is very domestic. The, the base of uh, Prime Minister Modi's, uh, you know, uh, domestically is very much on the right wing Hindu nationalist mm-hmm. side. So he does, and that base is heavily mobilized right now. Uh, so that is an element that that very much pushes Modi in in one clear direction of, of continuing this. Uh, beyond that, and I think the, the important point for Canada here, and here there is a parallel to make with the dispute we had with Saudi Arabia in 2018, that yes, in a way, this is about Canada. There's a very specific dispute between the two countries on uh, the issue of Sikh uh, activism in this country. We know that. That is absolutely true. There's a disagreement at that level. But beyond that, there is a, a message that India is, is sending here to other Western democracies, but to the world beyond Western democracies. We are a rising power. You need to take our interests much more seriously. You cannot push us around. And in that sense, Canada is collateral damage. We are not the United States. We are not a member of the European Union. We're kind of alone in between. That was a similar dynamic with Saudi Arabia five years ago. That puts us in a vulnerable position. And my, my fear is that uh, this is a situation that could very well repeat itself in the future with another country, whether a partner like India or, or Saudi Arabia or a non-partner adversary like China or, or another one. Well, Roland, just as a final point, your take on that, because it also is an echo of, of what we were told when the two Michaels, when Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor were taken, is that they were sending a message to America using us as the example. Yeah, I think that uh, India is also probably getting a message back, and I wouldn't underestimate uh, how significant that can be from parties that India has a very strong interest in developing relations with. Mm. But it's true that there is a danger here, and the larger strategic uh, vulnerability could be of Canada becoming an easy mark, so to speak. And that's something that we cannot allow to happen, and that means that we have to both be there's a home game and an away game aspect to this the home game is we have to strengthen our capacity to detect and disrupt these kinds of coercive measures that might be taking place in Canada against the Canadian government or against Canadian citizens and secondly our away game we have to be working with our allies as much as possible in order to create deterrence and you know this is part of the world we're living in we just don't have the same kind of protection uh, that we used to have. We have to get used to it. We have to work within that world and we have to be able to push back when necessary. Gentlemen, I, I always appreciate your insight on this and, and every other topic you join us to discuss. Thank you so much. Roland Paris, Tomah Juno. Thanks so much, gang. Pleasure. New Brunswick could be headed towards a snap election. There are a lot of signs that Premier Blaine Higgs will call one early after saying his government cannot function with defiant MLAs in his caucus. He's referring to a motion this past summer when six PCs voted with the opposition Liberals. Trevor Holder was one of them. There's no need for an election. We can all get back in the room and continue out the last year of our mandate and stick to our promises of fiscal accountability, economic expansion and population growth. That's what I ran on the last election. I made a commitment to the people in my riding. I'd be here for four years to fight for those things. Let's get back in the room and let's go back to building consensus the same way that we did in any other government I was ever a part of. 
Jacques Poitras is CBC's provincial affairs reporter in New Brunswick. He joins us now from Fredericton. Uh, Jacques, a busy summer and sounds like a potentially really busy fall for you in, in New Brunswick politics. How did we get to this point that we could have an early election? Well, I mean, you'll remember in June we talked about the six government MLAs, progressive conservative MLAs, who voted with the opposition uh, on a non-binding motion about a policy about school pronouns, uh, pronouns used by LGBTQ kids in schools. Um, this has been sort of festering all summer. Uh, those MLAs, a couple of them quit cabinet, a couple of them were shuffled out of cabinet. This caucus dynamic has been going on all summer. It was, it was quiet though, but now we, we're in the fall and uh, the Premier has basically said, I can't govern this way. These six members have said, we are progressive conservatives, we will support government bills, we will vote with the Premier on confidence measures, we don't want to bring down the government, we just want a bigger role for caucus in government decision making. The Premier has said, well, they're effectively trying to act like an independent bloc and decide when to vote with or against the government, and I can't have this. So he has hinted at an early election. We don't know that that's going to happen mm. for sure, but there are a lot of indicators that we're moving in that direction. Okay, other than the obvious turmoil, you know, what are some of those other indicators? What are the other signs that we could be headed to an election? Well, David, you covered a lot of provincial politics, so you know that uh, when provincial property assessments, you know, the amount you're going to pay on your house mm. are delayed from October to January, all of a sudden, uh, something might be up. Or, uh, you know, when the provincial power utility that had a debt reduction target it was supposed to hit, which was going to lead it to apply for higher power rates from the regulator this week, suddenly is told that deadline's been moved back so they don't have to apply for those higher power rates this week. I mean, these are, I'm not saying this is because an election is coming, but if an election were coming, these are the kind of things you might expect to see. Yeah, I'm sure it's just pure coincidence that this is all happening at the same time while the premier's musing out loud. Okay, so if, if an election is called, uh, how are the parties currently looking, and, and, and how stable is Blaine Higgs, given everything that's happening even inside his own caucus and the year he's had? Well, you know, the big, one of the big questions back in June was whether he would even run for another right. mandate, but he ended the suspense on that, and he said he will. Uh, didn't say at the time it would be right away, but um, that seems to be where we're going. I mean, the, you know, the polling has the governing PCs and the opposition liberals roughly in a statistical tie, but because of vote distribution and vote efficiency, that would favor uh, the PCs, but Higgs is also one of the most unpopular premiers in Canada, low approval rating. He was down with uh, Heather Stephenson in Manitoba, and we know what happened to her this week. So there is a feeling that uh, while it would be his election to lose and that that pronoun issue might work for him, uh, voters are interested in health care, they're interested in affordability, they're interested in housing, and that may not be uh, as easy a campaign for him on those issues as, as what he would uh, like it to be. Okay, uh, Jacques, I have a strong sense that we're going to be talking quite a bit over the next little while. Thanks for joining us today as New Brunswick Provincial Affairs reporter Jacques Poitras. And today, the voters have spoken. And I look forward to meeting with caucus and the party executive to prepare the path forward from tonight. 
Heather Stephenson and her Manitoba PCs lost power this week after an election campaign that fueled criticism from within even her own party. An outgoing Manitoba Tory cabinet minister is denouncing her party's hard right pivot during the campaign, which featured billboards that call to stand firm against searching a landfill for two murdered Indigenous women, a message she now says is, quote, deeply regrettable. Rochelle Squires is a former Manitoba PCMLA for Real, and she joins me now. Rochelle Squires, it's nice to meet you. Thank you very much for having me on your show today. Uh, why do you think it's important to speak out about your concerns about the campaign now and, and not during the campaign itself? Well, it certainly was a really tough election that we just went through and a very tough week for Manitoba progressive conservatives. And uh, while there were a lot of concerns that were raised during the campaign, um, now I believe that um, the reason I decided to speak out was just so that uh, Manitoba progressive conservatives could uh, come to terms with what's left of their, uh, what's left of the party, left of the legacy of our former government, and car uh, carve a new pathway forward, one that will see some unification and uh, a better path forward where people are uh, clear about the stance and the policies that are going to be positioned and what will be put forward won't be coming as a surprise for any of the um, future candidates. Some of these ads uh, were, were pretty strongly criticized, right, as being cruel and insensitive and, and, and divisive is the way it's been described by a lot of people. I've read some of the reporting, though, in the aftermath, and no one seems to take responsibility for the decision. I mean, who, who decided to do this, and, and what were they trying to do? So as a, a um, former cabinet minister of that government and certainly as somebody who had held some senior portfolios uh, throughout the time in office, I am certainly uh, t taking accountability along with everybody else who ran uh, for the PCs, who was part of the PC um, campaign. I think that we all have a level of um, uh, responsibility and I certainly take uh, responsibility for that. Um, having said that, as a candidate, when we put our name on a ballot and we enter into that relationship, that very unique relationship between um, the, uh, as a candidate running for a, a party on a party platform and knowing that uh, decisions are going to be made, it's not always going to be a consensus decision. You can't run a campaign like that with 57 candidates by having everything vetted by each and every candidate. There's that, that sacred trust between a campaign manager and a campaign team and the candidates. Um, and candidates are often put on a need-to-know basis about what's coming down in terms of policy or um, uh, advertising. And, and I certainly do think that there was um, a stretch in this past campaign where candidates were not given um, a preview of any of the ads that were coming out and candidates were not um, asked for opinions until after they were you know, appearing in the, in the papers or on billboards. And at that point, it really was um, too late uh, for the opposition to these ads to be, um, uh, for a different uh, course to be taken. Do, do you think you were deliberately kept in the dark about these choices uh, because perhaps there was a sense at the top levels of the campaign they knew how controversial uh, these, these positions might be? You know, I couldn't speculate on that because I never stepped in the war room at all during the campaign. I was in a in a very difficult riding where uh, certainly we were feeling the challenges from the day the the first day we stepped out on the campaign trail. We knew that we were facing an uphill battle. I left my riding only um, 
uh, a few times infrequently uh, at the beginning of the campaign was to make some campaign announcements and to uh, you know be the face of the party on certain initiatives and then uh, once these ads became apparent and once they were out there um, on you know like I said on billboards or in the newspaper um, I withdrew from any campaign um, commitments or activities from that moment forward. Right, so you made your displeasure known in that way by not yes. participating in extra things. Um, I, I wonder now, though, are, are you staying in the PC party after this or are you leaving entirely? No, I've made my exit from provincial politics and while I do have very fond memories and um, amazing colleagues that will stay with me uh, forever, um, I've closed the chapter uh, for uh, my life in provincial politics and looking forward to some next, uh, a next step. But there's leaving, I guess, active political life and then there's tearing up your membership card, right? Uh, you know, and not being a member of the party and not being involved in it in future elections. Are you at that stage? And, and is it because, because you lost, you just want to change? Or is it because of your disagreement with the, the direction the party went in this campaign? You know, I think that the party has a lot of soul searching to do and certainly needs to determine its identity as to whether or not it's remaining as a progressive conservative party or uh, it, whether or not it's going to be um, less progressive. And I think that, that par the party and those that are left and some very, very capable people, some newly elected people from Tuesday night in, in some, some of our seats that we managed to hold on to, they have uh, a great contributions and I have every confidence that their contributions will uh, be more valued than any contribution that I could make. And I'm certainly um, grateful for the time that I spent in office, but looking forward to uh, a next chapter outside of politics. Kelvin Gertzen, who served in cabinet with you as a justice minister who was re-elected in Steinbach, um, he said he also had some deep concerns about the negative ads, but, but felt calling them out publicly after losing the election would serve no purpose. Uh, what do you make uh, of that position your former cabinet colleague is taking, and, and is that, that a good one for the party to adopt in, in the wake of this defeat? I certainly respect Calvin Gertzen, and I wish him all the best as he uh, retains his role as the MLA for Steinbeck and as he moves forward in the next phase of his political career. And I have no doubt that he'll make some great contributions in steering uh, the caucus and the party to, to better, uh, better days ahead. And I appreciate his stance for me. I, I did feel that there were a lot of people throughout Manitoba who were questioning whether or not this was part of, um, you, you know, progressive conservatives were really troubled with what they saw and really um, needed to know that they weren't alone with those concerns and that they have an opportunity to have a voice. And I would certainly hope that everybody, when they get back around those tables, whether it's elected members or members of the party writ large, will get to the table and have those conversations about uh, what happened and really about the identity of this party. I, I wonder about the identity of the premier we saw on, on display in that election, because I'd interviewed Heather Stephenson many times in the run-up, and, and I always got the sense that she was a progressive conservative in the Manitoba tradition, and the, sort of the hard line that, that we saw in the campaign wasn't the Heather Stephenson I had had a sense of from, from here in Ottawa. Do you think she was her true self in the campaign when she went to these positions, or was she campaigning as something that wasn't authentic to her? 
as the first woman premier in the province's history, um, Heather Stephenson had a huge challenge in front of her, and um, uh, you, you know she had a lot of um, uh, obstacles and challenges to overcome, and it hadn't been an easy time for us in the previous four years in government. And uh, so, I, although I wasn't in the war room, I can't speak for the decision-making process or. A, any um, a, any of her experiences, but I certainly do uh, wish her all the best in her um, next next phase of her journey, and certainly hold on to some of those memories that I have of of uh, the the former premier and I making announcements for a lot of things that progressive conservatives hold dear, and that's that's what I. Uh, remember most, and that's what I will take from this uh, closed chapter. But were you surprised to see her take the positions she took in this campaign after working with her for all those years? I think many people were surprised. You know, three months ago, we were making announcements for um, improving um, services for the LGBTQ um, plus community. We were making announcements for um, eradicating gender-based violence. We were signing uh, a national action plan for um, improving uh, the lives for disenfranchised. We'd renamed the Manitoba Status of Women Secretariat to Gender Equity Manitoba, and we had increased uh, funding significantly, his unprecedented funding for disability services, to name a few. And so that that is what um, that is what I had certainly come to um, believe were values that she had held dear to her, and and I certainly. Um, uh, know that that is that is the person that she is 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 someone who would uh, really stick her neck out for uh, disenfranchised and under underrepresented communities as she did in her last year as premier. Rochelle Squires, former Manitoba PC MLA and cabinet minister, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, the Liberals tried to take control of the affordability agenda this week, rolling out announcements to build more homes and lower the price of food while sending grocery rebate checks to millions of Canadians. But one of their own MPs, Ken McDonald, may have disrupted that message when he came out against the government's carbon tax for a second time, saying it's making life unaffordable for his constituents. Everywhere I go, people come up to me and say, you know, we're losing uh, faith in the Liberal Party. Uh, they appreciate the fact that I've stood up now twice uh, to do away with a carbon tax or to ask for it to be delayed. So that's probably going over very well in the PMO. It's time to bring in the power panel to talk about all of this. Le Devoir columnist Emily Nicolas is here, as is the CBC's Jason Markasoff. And here with me in the studio, journalist and author Paul Wells and Susan Delacourt, national columnist for the Toronto Star. Okay, Susan, uh, Ken McDonald, I've known him for a long time. This is the second time he's done something like this. He's not alone in Atlantic Canada being frustrated yeah. with this. Uh, not uh, kind of a fly in the ointment for the liberal messaging this week, don't you think? Yeah, I actually think he did more damage, and I'm not just saying this to flatter you uh, in his interview with you. You know, I think if he had just stood up and said what he had to say, you know, that I'm not, I'm not voting with this, um, the Liberals have been pretty good about tolerating uh, dissent like Nader Erskine-Smith or yep. something. Uh, but uh, it was the interview he gave you, and I think he went, you know, saying the Liberals aren't going to win the next election, which isn't exactly a team sporty thing to say. And, um, and kind of a uh, uh, a drive-by at uh, Stephen Gilbo too. I thought those are the things that are going to make it the next caucus meeting a little difficult for him.
Yeah, uh, and Paul, feel free to flatter me. That's okay. If <laughs> but uh, it, it was an interesting thing when he flat out said Stephen Gobo is the wrong guy. The environment minister is the wrong person to talk about environment policy in, in that region of the country. And, and you've heard that from the Atlantic premiers too, including to some degree from Andrew Fury, the only other liberal first minister in, in Canada right now. I, I mean, how do you think they'll deal with this? Well, yeah. So there's a lot going on here. The 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 the, the carbon tax is is difficult in in uh, you know rural parts of the country that don't receive a lot of government services, um, and uh, you know so are are sort of less impressed by the uh, environmental arguments than people in Toronto who receive a hell of a lot of government services. Um, uh, secondly, I think the carbon tax is a proxy for generalized disaffection with the Trudeau government and with Justin Trudeau personally. Uh, um, uh, uh, and, and the small number of defeated Liberal MPs, including one or two in Newfoundland, will we, we'll say that. I'm thinking yeah. of um, Sim. Right, uh, Scott Sims. Scott, Scott Sims. Sims. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he says he couldn't sell Justin Trudeau in 21, and I, I assume it's harder now. Um, and, and I also think he's... Uh, he feels he's got nothing to lose. Look, he's not going to be in cabinet. Uh, and uh, a lot of MPs trooped off to London, Ontario and said at the, at the caucus retreat, we're going to give the prime minister what for. And what they read in the papers afterwards was the prime minister thought it went pretty well. So saying it in the caucus room apparently doesn't work. So now they're going to come and say it to you. Right. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And uh, we showed the, the, my interview with Ken McDonald showed up on Pierre Polyev's uh, Twitter feed uh, of, of, of all places, which, which tells you something right there. But I want to play a little chunk of this, Emily, before I get you to react to it. It's what I alluded to earlier and what Susan right. mentioned. Because I asked Ken McDonald whether Environment and Climate Change Minister Stephen Guilbeault, who is a big deal in Quebec, is the right guy to deliver this message. And he said no. Have a listen to this. Everywhere I go, people come up to me and say, you know, we're losing uh, faith in the Liberal Party. Uh, they appreciate the fact that I've stood up now twice uh, to do away with a carbon tax or to ask for it to be delayed. Okay, that, that actually wasn't... <laughs> we, we got it? We got the right one, Jerry? All right, here, here we go, as promised. Here we are. No, he's not. And because he's so entrenched in us, and, and, and I get it, I, I mean, where he came from and, and his whole idea of uh, making a big difference in climate change, but you can't do it all overnight. You can't make it more expensive on people than what they can handle. So, Emily, uh, how do you think that is going to affect things with Stephen Gobeau? We reached out to his office to see if he would come on the show today. We never heard back. Um, what's your take mm -hmm. on what Ken McDonald has done here? Well, first of all, uh, I do think that Stephen Gobeau is kind of the easy target in the sense that, I mean, I live in the Plateau Mont Royal. That's his writing. That's what he represents. This is basically the, the, the land of uh, removing cars, adding bike lanes, compost bins, and walkable pedestrian streets. Like, it's very hard when that's you know, where we come from to go uh, in rural parts of Canada and Atlantic Canada and be like, hey, I understand your reality. But at the same time, when I what I hear from, from this interview is that, um, you know, we're basically saying uh, he's the wrong guy to uh, to support this or, or to be selling this policy uh, because this policy is the wrong policy. And so mm. I don't think it's only a question of the messenger. It's a question of the policy itself. I don't know that anyone else uh, would be able to sell the the, the 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 gas tax better or the carbon tax better than the way it is. Uh, perhaps a strategic mistake or something where it would have been better done is to make sure that there is more consultation with the Atlantic 
caucus and making sure that they're a strong spokesperson in the region, being able, uh, being able to translate the message or the policy uh, better and to make people's concerns her or trying to adjust some details of it. But if people are flat out against the policy itself, there was going to be a conflict regardless of who's actually the minister and what their their resume were before coming into politics. So, so I think that the you know the personal and 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 the political and the, and the policy things are are getting murky, uh, which is usually the case at the House of Commons. <laughs> yeah, um, Jason, from your per- <laughs> for, from your perch uh, covering Alberta politics, I, I'm not sure if you have a lot of experience with with caucus dissent and opposition to the carbon tax. <laughs> but but if you have anything to add, <laughs> yeah, that, that, yeah, it's I mean, well, that, that's actually one one point to drive home that uh, that. That having one MP uh, be openly critical of uh, of your government is common, or one parliamentarian is, is common throughout you know democracy. We actually have very little um, dissent uh, within governing ranks or internal ranks uh, in in Canadian politics these days. It's I mean historically uh, it's it's abnormal and uh, globally it's abnormal. But surely this is you know not welcomed by. Uh, by many people there, and it's different from what happened in London with the complaints. Where the complaints were, we're not doing a great job selling. We're not. I'm not being heard. Uh, those are internal messaging. Nobody's actually attacking directly a policy. Um, you know what Kevin McDonald's doing is more direct. It's more right in line with what uh, Pierre Polyev is saying. Um, just saying that this, we, you know, it's not the messaging. It's not the way we're selling our story. It's not the way we're, uh, you know, the center is talking to uh, the backbenchers. It's the policy. I don't like the policy. Um, you know, I would imagine they hope that no, we're not going to hear a bunch more. That it's going to be Ken McDonald coming on the show and not, uh, you know, others, others lining up. And in terms of the, uh, the Stephen Gobo issue. Um, you know, I think on your show we've ha- had Danielle Smith, oh, I don't know, once, twice, or 34 times uh, saying that she can't stand uh, Stephen Gilbo. Uh, and what Trudeau winds up doing, what the government winds up doing, is sending out different messengers um, here mm. that are a bit more better received. Um, Natural Resources Minister John Wilkinson, uh, Christian Freeland, the Finance Minister. Uh, I'm not sure if that approach would work uh, as well in uh Atlantic Canada. Um, it seems like uh, that things are more acute there, and uh, there's much more friendly fire from east than uh, there are from the Alberta MPs. Yeah, and, and look, and, and Susan, it's not just the carbon tax; it's the clean fuel standard, right? So you talk about carbon tax, there is a rebate associated with it. There's not with the clean fuel standard, right? And and and, and this is the thing. Like, I don't know if there is an Atlantic champion because I think most of the Atlantic MPs are pretty frustrated with this. Yeah, they. You know, the, I think the question is going to be: Is has he emboldened others to speak out? Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to go home over the break? and be told, uh, why can't you be more like Ken McDonald? You know, we want more of that there. So um, I, don't, I don't know yet whether this is just a one-off, but the fact that he was willing to sit and talk to you about this tells me that there's another shoe or two to drop. Yeah, uh, Paul, there is a lot of noise um, that there is going to be a remedy, right? Uh, Ken McDonald said he was assured by the Deputy Prime Minister Freeland that a correction is coming. I keep hearing this from Atlantic MPs. But, like, the math on this, right, like, People heat their home with oil in big numbers in, say, Newfoundland and Labrador and, and other parts of the province. Your typical tank is a 1,000 liters. Yeah. This tax is 175 bucks on that tank, and there's no rebate associated with that. The, av- the median income for a single earner household with a woman as the earner in Newfoundland is $18,000. Yeah. Right? So you put that tax on it, it's some angry people. Well, and if there is going to be a remedy, pr- probably the worst time to bring that reveni- remedy in would be in the spring, after, the, after they spent the, yes. the, the winter. <laughs> Get it before the winter bills, yes. Yeah. That's a good, good call. Um, 
The part of the problem is that this uh, general policy of, of putting a price on carbon is uh, about as popular in large parts of the country as it is unpopular in other parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Anderson and Spark Advocacy actually had a, some polling on that uh, this week, and it and it showed um, that there are. Uh, places and demographic pockets where uh, it's much more popular than not. But if you're trying to run a national government, um, you know that part of the reason that uh, the I stand with Trudeau hashtag crowd on Twitter stands with Trudeau is precisely because uh, he has this policy and because Stephen Guibault is his environment minister and so on. So uh, they're, they're not likely to throw that policy overboard wholesale. Um, because it's part of what makes this liberal government liberal. It's just that this is a dog that is showing less and less ability to hunt in places yeah. like rural Newfoundland. Yeah, so, so Emily, on that, because it, it really is a, a whole rural... Ca- to me, this, this issue and the problem with this issue mm-hmm. is very similar to the gun legislation problem they ran into, not understanding the lives of a lot of rural Canadian people because it's an urban-dominated cabinet, especially, right. and, and caucus right. more broadly. I mean, politically, can you get away with a carve-out for rural Atlantic Canada, where, yes, it's burning oil, yes, it's emissions, but in the big emissions picture, it's a very small part. When you've got the unrest from Daniel Smith in Alberta on the clean energy regulations, I mean, can you do a one-off deal here for Atlantic Canada without sparking outrage in other parts of the country? No. I also can tell how you're dying to be panelists on this one is like our new, Newfoundlander uh, in, in place. But uh, I, I, I just think that um, cannot, you cannot do anything out east that, that is not going to affect policy out west. And mm-hmm. it's going to be what about us? Um, and so it's it's either the, the entire country or, 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 or not at all. And it's true, you know, things election wise could be tough in the Atlantic region if you divide you know, the country by region, but you can also divide by the country by uh, age and generation. And one of the demographics that's been really hard uh, or that the liberals are bleeding right now is is the younger demographic that are increasingly interested at the conservative agenda, given uh, how they've been speaking about, for example, the housing crisis. And so, um, you know, there's regional divisions, but there's also that reality of, I don't know how well it would go uh, for uh, Trudeau if they were to um, not act on climate change as swiftly as possible, if they want to keep engaged a part of the younger generation of Canadians as well. Right. So, so Jason, what's your sense uh, from Alberta? If there was to be something uh, to accommodate sort of the concerns of the rural Atlantic, I mean, would there have to be something to accommodate the larger concerns of Alberta? Or does that all just make this uh, a non-starter? Well, I mean, there are unique challenges in rural Alberta. Sorry, in, in, in Atlantic Canada, where the uh, the carbon tax uh, rules changed uh, this year, where there were some uh, some you know, discounts being given on the uh, carbon tax offsets by uh, provinces, and those were uh, removed. So things are things have been more acutely felt there. But I'd imagine uh, that you know other pockets where support is soft uh, may be howling with uh, frustration if uh, there was a support for one uh, group and not the other. Okay. I want to broaden this out a little bit because, uh, Susan, you know, we, we've seen uh, the, the, the larger economic discussion. We saw the new data today for the new job numbers for September, 64,000 jobs, tripling uh, economists' expectations, and some meaningful wage growth, 5% wage growth. The government rolls out some housing announcements. It rolls out its plan to deal with the grocery stores, um, you know, and, and today the grocery rebate ended up in people's bank accounts. After being criticized of not having an economic plan, an affordability plan, excuse me, are we seeing the scaffolding of one now in a way that resonates with people? I, 
both those things can be true, <laughs> or one of those things can be true, and one can't. Um, I think we're seeing the scaffolding, mm-hmm. but I don't know that. Um, I think this feels like something more existential. You know that what's bugging people isn't you know can't be added up on a, a you know what's the word for a balance sheet. Right. Um, I talked to uh, I was doing something today and I talked to Abacus Data, and I asked David Coletto, the CEO there. Um, what are people going to be talking about around the Thanksgiving dinner table? Going to be talking about, you know. Um, and he said he had asked people, been in the field last week, and asked them what their what was keeping them up at night. Right. And it's housing, cost of living, and inflation. Those are the things that. So are people? Is is that a feeling more than a tangible thing? I think so. And I think people are casting around looking who to blame for the fact that. Thanksgiving feels a little blah this year. You know that uh, he said people are going to be talking about how much that turkey cost. Right. Um, so, which may not be one hundred and twenty dollars. This uh, no, we heard in Pearl, no. Right? That, that, that's the high end ones. That's already and it may not be yeah. a what we would probably have the words a, a shrimpy, skinny yeah. turkey that, as opposed to the big fat ones during the conservative <laughs> years. Um, so yeah, I, th- I I think we see that they're trying that this is a plan. But I don't know that it, it addresses a more existential, if that doesn't sound too weird, um, malaise or unease out there. Right. Well, well, Paul, I tested positive for COVID for the first time last Thanksgiving, so I'm looking forward to a much better <laughs> Thanksgiving weekend this weekend, I hope. Uh, uh, where do you think the government is now after you, you're seeing these housing accelerator announcements are coming, even though the houses are going to take a while? They're stacking up some numbers there they can point to. And I, I'm still not quite sure how the grocery plan is going to work, but the industry minister seems convinced it will. I, I mean, where do you think they are in terms of getting control of this issue? Well, part of the problem is that it's not only the government that controls the economy, there's also the bank of Canada. If I'm yes. the bank governor and I look at uh, yeah. these uh, job numbers and uh, and things like uh, uh, grocery rebate going into people's uh, bank accounts and stuff, I don't feel authorized to cut interest rates very quickly, which means that major investments are still going to be expensive, that, you know, um, the last... You feel like raising them. That's the big question. Yeah. Right? Uh, the 5% wage growth and stuff that Peter was talking about, what might the Bank of Canada do, right? I mean, the current bank governor also, one thing he's got on his mind is that is that uh, the guy who would like to be the next prime minister of Canada has already announced that he's going to fire him. So I would feel free <laughs> to raise interest rates. Like, what, what have I got to lose? Fire I like Kevin Donald. Stephen Polos did, but, you know, that, 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 that's where we are. Yeah. Um, um, y- you know, so there's... There, the, as Susan suggests, the, the disinfection that people are failing is complex, has a lot of causes. Yeah. And typically, if one thing gets better, pretty soon you find you hear about something else that's getting worse, um, which is what leads people to th- say and sometimes to campaign on the notion that everything feels broken. Right. And Emily, I guess the challenge from the, for the government from a political perspective is that people can hear them say it, but then they've got to feel it in their lives. Right. And, and that is a, mm-hmm. uh, a much more difficult thing to do, especially when it comes to housing, because building houses take so long. Yes, and so we're not necessarily going to see any results yield, uh, you know, anything politically um, any anytime soon. However, um, it, it is it is true that there is also a lot at stake, not just with the the couple of um, priorities that we've just listed, but in my when I ask around me, when the the other issue is really is climate change. It's not you know something that's far off from people's reality. Literally, Canada's just burned. 
this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of people my age who are actually thinking of not having children because they don't know if their children will be living in some sort of an ap- apocalypse or not. And so that is very real. Um, and so, and, and it's not something that's completely, you know, off track or just some, some really extreme people thinking that. It's really a, a kind of a malaise that's, that's, that's going on that, that's pretty strong as well. So yes, there's housing, there's affordability crisis, there's, there's all of that. But there's also people, you know, thinking differently about uh, whether or not they'll be ever able to retire or whether or not they'll be able to have a family. It's not just because they cannot afford afford housing. And so, yes, uh, things are bleak, uh, but things are bleak, I think, for questions that we often tend to ignore when it comes to just being like, are we able to, are we able to just you know, win the next election or not with this or this in that region? Uh, I think what's going on there is a little bit bigger. And that's why mm. where it seems like every party is having a hard time putting their finger on it, depending on what demographics they're actually trying to cater to or not. Jason, what's your sense of, of where, where the government is on, on trying to get control of this since they came back? Well, you know, they've, they don't seem to have a big bump in the polls yet. Mm. Uh, it seems that people, you know, I, I, I take uh, Emily's point about the uh, concerns over, uh, and the essential concerns over climate change. Uh, you know, but polling has consistently shown that, uh, that housing inflation and uh, cost living issues uh, tend to be more pressing concerns when people are asked about uh, what issues are on their mind. And you know, in the t- yeah, there's there's been a lot of efforts that the Liberals have been making, and you know, er- announcements, big headlines uh, in in various cities will uh, will help. Uh, the I think a lot of the MPs said we should look like we're doing something and we should be doing more things. And clearly, there is that strategy, um, but has it? Uh, has it helped raise liberal fortunes? Uh, no, because it also hasn't helped uh, raise, uh, change the indicators, mm. either the housing costs um, and people's uh, sense of how things are going on inflation. Susan, there, there comes a time in every government's life cycle, though, that no matter what you say, mm-hmm. what you put in the window, people have tuned you out and, and they're just not listening. I mean, how, are, how, are they close to that yet, do you think? How dangerous is it for them at, the, at this point in time if they don't get some traction, say, by the Christmas holidays? It depends on who you ask, I think. Um, I, I actually did run into the Prime Minister this week, as one does. Sure. Uh, yeah, in, yeah. yeah, and um, he seemed kind of, uh, he always does seem kind of upbeat, but he seemed to be talking about how time was on his side still. You know, an election is a long way away. People won't stay this angry for this long a time. However, I did, uh, I asked the Liberals, Liberals put out, uh, every Thanksgiving, something called Turkey Talk. I don't yeah. know if you, and it's what to say <clears throat> when your crazy uncle says, you know, that Justin Trudeau is ruining the country. It's, you know, how to manage uh, talk at the table. And uh, I noticed all the answers this year are just answer with Pierre Polyev is wrecking everything. And right. th- that told, tells you where their heads are at. Uh, Paul, uh, maybe they can't stay angry uh, that long. Maybe they can get angrier, right? We've got a three-year run of, of frustration in the country going on right now. Seems, I mean, wh- wh- where do you think you're on that question of whether they're at risk of just losing the room entirely? There's a guy named Andrew Bevan who's coming to town who's going to be the chief of staff to the deputy prime minister. He was the chief of staff to the last liberal premier of Ontario, maybe ever. He can tell people <laughs> here what direction anger sometimes goes. Right. Um, and look, here's the thought. If you're going, if you're a liberal and you're going home for Thanksgiving, uh, maybe instead of taking your talking points with him, maybe shut up and listen to your uncle. Uh, maybe he's, he'll tell you something that you want, you need to hear. Uh, like that there's a long, long list of policies that, uh, haven't worked. 
that people are hurting because of policies that are in place and going to be implemented, maybe for once in a while you should listen to your uncle. Uh, that's an interesting <laughs> thought. Uh, uncle Paul just put on the table. Emily, uh, your quick final take, and then Jason, then we got to go. And maybe the uncle should be listening to the other, whoever the uncle is. Right? We never think we're the uncle ourselves. Uh, we, <laughs> we should be listening to, to one another maybe a little bit more. Uh, and also, it just the whole thing makes me smile because as a Francophone, we don't really have Thanksgiving. So uh, and you guys enjoy, enjoy your turkey. <laughs> All right, Uncle Jason, wrap it up. <laughs> Oh, Uncle Jason is terrible, terrible jokes, which I will try not to uh, <laughs> produce. It, you know, I think, you know, we'll, if if we have an if we have a recession, if we have higher interest rates uh, coming down the pipe, uh, you know, the blame seems to have been cast in the liberals' direction, and I don't know if that would uh, change if things get even worse. Okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll enter our Thanksgiving weekend on that note. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you, including you, Emily, even though you, you don't really have it. But, you know, enjoy your weekend as it is. Uh, Emily, Nicola, Jason Markasoff, Paul Wells, and Susan Delacroix. Have a good weekend, gang. Thanks so much. Welcome back to Power and Politics. The Liberals tried to take control of the affordability agenda this week, rolling out announcements to build more homes and lower the price of food while sending grocery rebate checks to millions of Canadians. But their narrative got sideswiped by one of their own. Liberal MP Ken McDonald voted with the Conservatives to scrap the carbon tax. He then sat down with me to say the Liberal environmental plan is hurting his constituents and costing his party political support. Uh, everywhere I go, people come up to me and say, you know, we're losing... Uh, faith in the Liberal Party. Uh, they appreciate the fact that I've stood up now twice uh, to do away with a carbon tax or to ask for it to be delayed. All right, we're going to check the pulse of Canadian politics now in a week that also saw the election for Canada's first First Nations Provincial Premier and the election of the first black Canadian as Speaker of the House of Commons. I'm joined by Fred Delory, a partner at North Star Public Affairs and a former Conservative campaign manager. Melanie Richet, senior consultant at Earnscliff Strategy and former director of communications for the New Democratic Party. And Greg McEachern with Can Strategies, who was a former Liberal ministerial staffer. All right, Fred, let's, let's get to... Ken McDonald speaking out against his party, a clip I have seen on conservative social feeds, <laughs> I have seen transcribed in a conservative news release, suddenly we're a very popular news source with the conservatives. Yes. What do you make of this move by the MP from Avalon? And you're going to see him a lot more, I'm sure, during an election as well. Uh, look, the, the conservatives set this up very well this week by putting a motion forth on the carbon tax. Really, the plan is showing that they are the lone party that stands against it, putting the bloc, the Liberals and the NDP all together uh, that support it during this time of inflation and uh, price and crisis that people are feeling. Uh, but to have a, uh, this extra gift of a Liberal MP actually uh, voting with them and then going on your very show <laughs> and, and talking about how, uh, how bad this thing is to Canadians and even going as far as saying how people are losing faith in the Liberal Party is what he's been told from people he's talking to. Uh, that is, a, that is a, a big win for the Conservatives and you're going to see a lot of what he said a lot uh, during the election, I'm sure. Yes, uh, Mel, they, they jumped on it right away. Um, he, he, Ken McDonald didn't just say this was hard on his constituents, because there's two things here. Carbon tax, yes, there's a rebate. The clean fuel standard, there is no rebate. People in Atlantic Canada are eating that cost, and that's what's eating at the Liberal support. But he also said the environment minister shouldn't be selling environmental policy in Atlantic Canada. That's a problem. Right. It's totally a problem. And to Fred's point, the Conservatives laid a trap and he walked right into it. Um, and I think the only thing that or the only thing that 
happens with that is he's hurting his credibility in the riding, he's hurting his party's credibility, and he's hurting um, he's hurting really his government while coming yeah. out and saying that. Uh, to your point, though, people are hurting and something needs to be done. A, a friend of mine in, in Newfoundland actually was saying that she could pay up to $1,500 uh, a month in, in having to pay to keep the lights on in her home, which is just unaffordable for, mm -hmm. for most people, right? So um, what can governments do to both um, face that in a real way so that constituents think that the government's taking affordability seriously without throwing your government under the bus and by the way you under the bus too because in the next election you're still a liberal yeah, I, well, I'm not sure Cam McDonald's in credibility in Avalon, uh, Greg, because uh, th th there's a stubborn streak in politics back home. And, and, uh, yeah, look, uh, uh, Google, Paul, Google Paul Lane. He's a member of the Newfoundland legislature who quit the liberals, quit the con to go to the quit the conservatives to go to the liberals, and then quit the liberals to sit as an independent. And he's been reelected each time because he <laughs> took stands. Cam McDonald may be in that territory, and this is not comfortable territory, I would suspect. You you'll be shocked crowd. that we had a very similar case in Cape Breton at, yeah. at one point. Yeah. Uh, so yes. F familiar. Um, so uh, let's not bury the lead here. The most important thing, I think, is that Pierre Polliver watches your show and, <laughs> and tweets about it, and the CBC may be saved. Um, but you know what? Whenever this happens, I get a kick out of it, because this is exactly what we supposedly want MPs to do, sure. to think independently. And about two weeks ago, there was a big uh, story that when there were some um, protests around the Hill, um, the memo went out from the opposition leader's office to tell everybody, don't say anything. And here you have a Liberal MP who is speaking his mind. And I don't think it's a surprise what he's saying about Liberal fortunes, because we've heard nothing but polling chat for weeks and weeks and weeks. Yeah. So, you know, I would say, you know, I'm not trying to shine the turn up here, but I would say there's an advantage here for the Liberals in that if, you know, I don't think they should, and I don't think they will take super punitive action, action on, on McDonald, because it shows that they have a caucus that, that's listening. And this is really close to the London caucus, where there was supposed to be like some, some airing of grievances around things like this. Scott Sims lost the committee chair for disagreeing with his government, if you remember. I, I mean, do you think they'll take some action? Because, um, you know, I, I, my phone blew up uh, from a lot of people from back home and here in Ottawa when McDonald was there and saying, he's going to get kicked out of caucus. I, I don't know if you it know, will happen. I mean, what's your there, sense? There may be some things, but there would not be the things that we as average citizens would notice, you know, in terms of who gets a visit maybe from, you know, a, a popular cabinet minister when there's a trip to Newfoundland. Right. There, there can be things like that. David, the other thing I'd say is, look, Atlantic Canadians have been very supportive of this government, but for some time there has not been a senior Atlantic Canadian advisor in the Prime Minister's office. Quebec Liberals would never put up with that. So I do find sometimes with Atlantic Canadian issues, PMO can be a little slow to understand what's going on. It's very different. I moved here. I couldn't believe heat was included with rent because back home, struggling out of you know university, yeah. I'm pay trying to fill an oil tank with two roommates. So there are different you know, regions suffering different things. Yeah, the typical house has like a thousand liter tank and you put a 17 cent tax per liter on that. That's 175 bucks a tank you're at. You're adding on to this with a clean fuel standard. And again, there's no rebate on that. But you know, Fred, um, how would Prime Minister Harper 
have dealt with a backbencher who criticized <laughs> policy like this and, and uh, criticized, <laughs> Greg is laughing here, and criticized a cabinet minister like this saying, keep the guy out of, out of the region. Uh, well, it's, it, I don't recall anything quite like that happening uh, with a guy staying in caucus uh, going mm. that far. The fact that he had to go out and do this, had, he had to come to your show to do this, to mm-hmm. blow off the steam. He couldn't do it internally, or, or they have, and no one's listening. That's a big problem internally that the Liberals clearly have here, uh, the fact that they have to go public like this and not aggressive on it. Again, saying that people are losing faith in the Liberal Party. You know, Mel, I, I do hear that, that there is a fix coming for this, right? And Ken McDonald said that last night, that he was promised by the Deputy Prime Minister when she was in Placentia, Newfoundland, uh, for a visit that, yeah, there's something coming here. Um, what's the solution? And, and how do you fix this without enraging Alberta, which has huge concerns about the clean energy regulations and, and, and other rural parts of Canada unless it does become a nationwide policy approach. Right. And, and enraging anybody who actually cares about action on the climate crisis, right? Because those are the two um, audiences that you're also yep. trying to balance in that. Um, one of the proposals that, that the NDP put forward, and they think that they can get some good traction, and we saw, I believe the Conservatives also voted in favor of this when they brought it into the House, um, is removing the GST from a, as a first step um, in the Atlantic provinces. That would, that would help, mm. um, but but we'll see if the government uh, picks up that, that baton. Um, and, and other measures, obviously, are important to face this. Things are tough. Things are expensive. So if in the absence of doing that, and to your point, there's no rebate um, on, on that second measure, what can the government do to help specifically folks in the Atlantic provinces that are really... Um, struggling more than, than folks uh, outside. Right. Greg, the argument to keep hearing from, from politicians out east is, uh, look... The amount of people who burn oil in, in Atlantic Canada as a big picture for the Canadian emissions profile is small. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the impact of this is, on them is large, mm-hmm. and it could cost you seats there, and you risk losing your entire environmental agenda if you lose the government, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, is that a valid argument? Is this a sort of you know, pressure point issue that, that they need to respond to? You know, it would be wise to pay attention to history. Um, the uh, number of seats in uh, Nova Scotia, for example, I believe is 11. Uh, all 11, Cretchen won in 93, and he lost all 11 in 97. Mm-hmm. Um, so the tide can go in and the tide can go out. Uh, you ought to pay very close attention to it. And there's a bit of a precedent here when I say about the need for senior Atlantic Canadian advice. You know, I remember the government was very slow to call an inquiry into the massacre in Nova Scotia. Yep. You know, yep. that personally was quite an irritant for me. I remember saying so in social media and hearing from elected members thanking me for, you know, pushing that forward. So, you know, there's a bit of a broken telephone where there there really shouldn't be. These issues are way too serious for that. Yeah, I, I remember speaking with someone in government when that happened uh, and saying, you got to go full inquiry. And they said, no, this will work. I said, you can't give a small place the bare minimum when the worst thing has happened. Mm-hmm. you got to respond in, in the way that, that they clearly want. Okay, uh, let's move on to our second topic here, Greg, uh, because the, we're going to talk about the Manitoba election <laughs> and uh, talk about tides coming in and tides going out. Uh, I guess that can happen in Manitoba. It's a little bit more inland than where we're from. Uh, but what's, what's your take on, on those election results? So uh, I, I see the, um, the you know, I, I paid attention to your interview earlier with the former cabinet minister in Manitoba, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, you know, very upset with the turn that her party took. And, you know, there's been a lot of coverage in recent days about how I think you even asked the question whether or not this, who was the real Heather Stevenson here? Yep. The government uh, the, the former government now in, in Manitoba, the PCs, decided to make an election issue out of a search for bodies in a landfill. And I still, I think for years from now, um, political scientists, uh, students will be studying that. It reminded me of, of the tip line um, that the Harper government did. And 
that tip line costs, you know, for years afterwards, they were apologizing for it. The two people who did the uh, the press conference that day were both had big leadership aspirations. Uh, Chris Alexander and Kelly Leach. Kelly Leach. They're gone. They're way off. And I think what's going to happen in Manitoba is that the government, the PC party will have to go into a convention. They'll have to talk about this, how this happened. And they'll be dealing with this for a while before they can even get up off the mat. And I say that, you know, as, as an, you know, kind of a, uh, something to watch for my federal liberal friends. Don't get desperate. Don't do stupid things that you're going to, you know, be paying for. You're going to lose and be paying for uh, in, in, in spite of that. I think the other part of that is a bit of a play is that going hardcore conservative, there was a huge rejection. I think people have looked at the federal polls and thinking that somehow the rejection right now that people, the anger around um, the Trudeau liberals means that they're angry about progressive policies. I think the Manitoba election shows that that's not true. Yeah, Fred, it was certainly the case that urban and suburban voters in Winnipeg uh, rejected what happened there. But you've run campaigns. Help me understand the choice there. Like, I I can understand you've got a feasibility study that says this landfill search is going to be $180 million, a low chance of success, and there's a health risk to the searchers. Governing's about making hard choices. You can say, look, I'm sorry, but we just can't do this. Mm -hmm. But to put a billboard up, right, and and to bring it up unprompted in a debate and make it, it in the city where these women were murdered and where their families live, like, What's that thought process behind that choice? I've been in a lot of campaigns, uh, some winning campaigns, some losing campaigns. I have no idea how you can come up with such a stupid idea. Uh, I don't know how you can get to that uh, that type of an outcome. Um, you're right to your point. Like maybe maybe there's a reason why not to do that, uh, but to campaign on it, to try to make it a, uh, a part of your one of your top three reasons to vote for you is ridiculous, yeah. and I don't see how that would ever work. Uh, that was a campaign that completely was dysfunctional. They had no plan. They had no real narrative. It was a complete mess. And I I would warn the the Liberal Party uh, federally here to uh, you know they're in a similar path where it seems like they have no narrative right now themselves and they're drifting on that way um, you know and again what what Greg said about you know hardcore conservative I think that it was hardcore stupid is what they <laughs> it wasn't hardcore conservative it was just I don't know what these guys are trying to do <laughs> that, that, that's a good way to describe it Mel your quick take on that and then we'll get to your pick yeah to, to your point like I don't know how that's your top three things that you're pushing or you're telling voters to vote free for um, I think what we saw was they tried to make this about uh, tapping into people's anger and instead of people responding in that way um, the um, showing of hope in yeah. the Manitoba NDP campaign and with, with Wab Canoe is, is what people actually responded to so I think that that's a lesson um, in Manitoba but I think it's also a lesson in, in the next election that you can't just tap into people's angers you have to propose stuff to make their lives better and I think the Manitoba NDP did that real well Just a quick point on that I was in the room when Wab Canoe gave a speech mm-hmm. and, and I said uh, to one of the NDP staffers that I knew I said I'm from St. John's I've <laughs> never seen this many happy new Democrats in one place. Because they just don't win, you know, in in this sort of numbers uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. But you've got kind of a hopeful pick, and it's connected with what the the two big choices made on Tuesday. Who would lead Manitoba, and who would sit in the big chair in the House of Commons? Yeah, for sure. I think it was a a really good week for representation, and and I don't want to say this as a, okay, check mark, now we're done, we don't need to Mm. do any more work, but um, the election of of Greg Fergus as a speaker, as as the first black speaker, and I think in the G7, um, mm. was was really cool to see, and then of course the the election of of Wab Canoe as the first First Nations um, provincial premier is also really cool. He said something about how you know when when his father was a young man he wasn't able to vote, and now nope. his uh, his son is the premier of of the province. So how how cool 
um, for for young kids across the country who um, can look at, at those two, uh, the speaker and at, at, uh, at Premier Canoe or Premier Let Canoe, and see themselves mm-hmm. reflected. Um, and then there's also a, another, that a smaller news out of Manitoba, but the first um, transgender person was elected as, as a provincial MLA um, in Canada um, at either the federal or the provincial level. So in response to the the, the anti-trans protests that we saw um, just a few weeks ago that we talked about on, on the show, um, to see that um, really just yeah. the hope and the, um, uh, again, the reflection, the representation for people across the country to see, to see those, those three um, folks get elected is, is, is just a really good moment in a time that sometimes doesn't feel uh, so hopeful. Yeah, and it shows how uh, things are changing in, in Canada, right? Where Justin Trudeau is like the oldest national leader of politics. Is, you know, just uh, of all the, we got about ninety seconds left. I don't want to shortchange it because this is an excellent point. But Greg, uh, your your thoughts? Uh, on yeah, I, I had a bit of, of a play of the week, and it was Canoe's speech. And when he talked about, if he was asked about when improvements started, you know, in his life, he said, yeah. "It's when I stopped making excuses." And that hit me like a ton of bricks. Yeah, I looked at and, the opportunity, yeah. and I hope that a lot of young men uh, listen to that message. I think about what we're bombarded with, the Jordan Petersons of the, of the world. And today when I was emailing Mason, the producer from a coffee shop, about what my picks would be, and I talked about that, I could hear two men talking about Canoe's speech. Yeah. And I think it was probably one of the best speeches I've ever heard in Canadian politics. And it really spoke. Yeah, and, and Freddie talked about the power of a second chance, right? And, and mm-hmm. you don't get a lot of second chances in life. And quite frankly, people who look like Wab Canoe in politics have never gotten a second chance. Mm-hmm. And he took advantage of it on Tuesday. Yes, it was a, it was a very uh, pivotal moment, I think, in our country to see something like this happen. Um, Heather Stephenson, to her credit, the only good speech I think she gave in the entire uh, campaign was when she lost, and she mentioned how you know she hopes future uh, Indigenous children can see him yeah. and what he's done here. Yeah, she was very gracious in, in defeat. There's no question about it. And you know what? He also gives hope to CBC people because he used to have my old yes. job as a CBC reporter. And look, there can be life after public broadcasting. <laughs> All right, we've got to leave it there. I want to thank our, our, our panel, Melanie Richet, Fred Delory, and Greg McEachern. Guys, it's a great way to wrap the week. Thanks. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.